Gracious Father, we just again thank you for this study and, and we come again with anticipation of you opening our eyes and our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit to the truth that you have for us tonight. And Lord, as we ponder this close of Acts, but we also reflect back on these 20 weeks of the study, just remind us of those things that you'd have us remember and dwell on and meditate on and that those things that are transformative in our lives. And may we come away with a better understanding of how you advance your kingdom through your people. And may we see the end of Acts uh, truly a continuation to today of your work through your spirit, through those people that call themselves followers of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so last night of the Acts study, we're just at the end of 28. Uh, Paul has just arrived in... Um, Rome, and he's, uh, he's gonna, we're going to be told he's going to spend a couple of years there, and we're going to be doing a couple things tonight. We're going to be, uh, well, three things, really. We're going to be wrapping up this end of 28. We're also going to be reflecting on why does Luke end Acts the way he does. That's been a discussion of not a small um, importance to scholars, because he just seems to abruptly end it. And then we're going to spend a little time looking back on, on our study of Acts and the, the high points and just kind of remind ourselves uh, what we saw, what we read, what we learned over these past uh, 20 weeks. So let's start off with our text. Just remember that, that Paul, uh, when Festus, the governor, took over for Felix, Trying to appease the Jews, uh, he asked Paul if he would be willing to go from Caesarea, the, the, where the governor's uh, office was and residence, if he's willing to go back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Uh, Paul, understanding that um, things were probably not safe for him to go back to Jerusalem, knowing that uh, some people, the Sanhedrin, had developed a hit squad for him, um, he appeals to Caesar, which is his right as a citizen. He appeals to Caesar, which then requires him to go to Rome. And we have this uh, journey after his two years imprisonment in Caesarea, his journey uh, over the winter to Rome. And we ended last week as he arrived in Rome, and now we pick up that. We're going to start in uh, verse 16 in his arrival in Rome. And when we, remember Luke is with him, in fact, we believe Luke is with him during the entire two-year stay in Rome. We picked that up from a couple of Paul's letters. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. That soldier, by the way, is chained to him. And they would have been on probably six-hour shifts. So they would have stayed chained to, to Paul and they would have um, rotated, though he's allowed to be in his own residence. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, that'd be the Romans, when they had examined me, they wished to set me 
at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, and for, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So let's just look at this a minute. So three days, he's in Rome, and he already calls the, the Jews together. That'd be the equivalent of him going to the synagogue, as he did in every city he went to. But he can't, because he has this guard that isn't going anywhere that he's chained to. So he has to ask the people to come. But that, that shows us the freedom he has, that he can actually call together Jewish leaders and have, him, have them meet in his uh, residence. Um, so he calls them together, because he wants to make his point right away, this is what I'm doing here. He doesn't know that they haven't heard anything, which is a bit surprising, because if the Sanhedrin is all wound up about Paul, and they know he's going to Rome, would they not write their fellow Jews in Rome something about Paul to say, oh, by the way, heads up, this guy's coming to your city. These are the charges we have against him. He's defiled the temple. You know this guy is causing problems all over Asia, all over the, uh, the Greek peninsula or Achaia. And, and so they'd write something, but they don't. And there's been much speculation as to why they haven't written. Have they just given up? Do they not want to cause any trouble in Rome? Remember, the majority of the Sanhedrin are Sadducees, and the Sadducees are very uh, protective of their relationship with Rome. They are in power because of the relationship they have with Rome. And they don't want to agitate uh, Jews against Paul in Rome because, remember, Claudius, the emperor uh, a while back before Nero, had thrown out all the Jews out of Rome because of the tension between the Jews and the Christians. So they don't want to have a black mark against Judaism again in the Romans' eye, so maybe that's why they didn't. So maybe they just kind of wrote this thing off a little bit. Maybe it's just the fact that the letter hadn't gotten there. Remember, the mail is a lot like how humans travel. Uh, Humans had trouble over the winter traveling, especially they wintered in a port. Well, the mail did the same thing. In fact, somebody made a comment today. Maybe the, the letter had been in the ship with Paul, and maybe in the shipwreck, it went down. And so the letter uh, was in the ocean somewhere in the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know for sure, but there are some reasons why maybe the leadership never wrote to the Jews in Rome. But that has left the, the Roman Jews in a little bit of a quandary. Here they got this guy, Paul. The mere fact that he asks them to come and they come speaks to something. Either they, they understand that, that the, the sect of Christianity, they certainly, as they say, they know about that and all Jews everywhere spoke against it. And maybe they know Paul is maybe a leader in that, but whatever, he had the ability to call them together to kind of stake his position. And he comes at it as a Jew, right? Brothers are, 
I have no charge against our nation. I'm not, I have nothing against Judaism. I have nothing against the Jews. And so we get that flavor of what's going to be the, essentially the rest of this uh, chapter and the rest of the book here. And so he, he sets this stage. They hear this. And they decide that they need a broader audience. Again, he'd like to go to the synagogue. He'd like to speak, but he can't. So they decide to come. So, 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So they've now brought more of the leadership and maybe even the lay people, uh, uh, Jews from Rome, to hear him. From morning till evening, that's a long time, okay, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God. That's important because the Jew to the kingdom of God is what? Right? It's Jew. It's the Judaism. It's the nation of Israel. That's the kingdom of God. And he's now arguing for that the fulfillment of the promise, the expansion of the kingdom of God is what's happening through Jesus Christ. So he would take their understanding and expand it. Testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses, which, which would be the Pentateuch, okay, and from the prophets. That would be what we consider the prophets today. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Isn't that always the case? He goes to the synagogue, some will believe, but most will not, right? So this is in keeping that even in Rome, this pattern has continued. The ones that believe, we call them what, essentially? The remnant, the remnant that will always be there for Jews. They come to faith and believe, but the majority reject it. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And, and here's, the, here's the capstone of this whole thing of Acts about when it comes to who's going to believe and about the Jew. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, this is from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. God said this to Isaiah. This is Isaiah's, Isaiah's commissioning, chapter 6. But, he's all, but Paul is also saying he's saying it about Paul and about what will become Christianity. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they shall see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you what the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Several things going on. Remember when, when God commissions Isaiah, and we covered this probably a year ago, in Isaiah, he's saying, go to the people. I'm, I'm commissioning you as a prophet. Go to the people and say what I tell you to say. Though they will not listen to you. They will not see the truth. 
okay? So Isaiah, and, and we're in the middle of this, right? We're going through Isaiah now. He tells to the people, don't, you know, don't worry about uh, Assyria. God's going to take Assyria. Don't go to Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. Understand this, understand. And the people what? They don't believe. They will not turn. They will not do what God is saying to them. And so God says, Isaiah, tell them what I'm telling you, but know this. They're not going to believe. They're going to hear, but not hear. And so Paul is saying that is what's true, what's happening to the Jew today. It happened to the Jew around 700, which is the time of Isaiah, 700 B.C. And here we are, 760 years later, and Paul is saying the Jew still, still hears but does not understand, sees but does not perceive. And so Paul is is aligning himself with Isaiah, so he's aligning himself as a prophet of God, and he's essentially saying the Jew has still not, 750 years later, and the same thing could be said you know, 400 years before that, still will not listen to the prophets of God. And so the, the result of all that is because they, that they won't listen, that God has gone to them over and over. They won't listen. They're going to turn to the Gentiles. Why? Because they will listen. The truth of Jesus Christ is going to go out there and it is going to spread and advance the kingdom of God and it's going to go where they listen and where they hear and where they believe. And that is not the Jew. We we know that two years earlier than this, Paul wrote the book or the letter to Romans, the book we call Romans, and he talks about in that about the Jew, and, and, he, and he's in great pain for why the Jew won't come to faith. And we saw that in our study of Acts uh, when, uh, on Sunday morning. He, he goes, why won't my brothers? I'd rather go to hell and have my brothers accept Christ than what's happening now. And so he's had this burden, and here at this close, Luke puts this statement of going, no, this, nothing has changed with the Jew. They didn't listen before. They won't listen now. Now, what's going to be interesting is next week, we're going to start our study on Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is, after they've been destroyed, okay, Isaiah prophesied, prophesied 700, okay, they, they still don't listen. In 586, they're destroyed. And then, years later, he brings back to build the temple, that's Ezra. And then Nehemiah comes back to build the walls for Jerusalem. So we see this restoration of this period of time, this how the Old Testament ends with, well, maybe there's hope for the Jew. And yet here we are 400, 500 years later. No, no, it's no different. They still won't listen. This idea, too, it isn't like all of a sudden, because sometimes this is how it's been seen in history, 
that God has turned his favor from the Jew to the Gentile. No, it's just he's putting his word out, broadly casting the word of truth about Jesus Christ. And it's just the Gentiles believe. That's the difference. See, the Jew says the Gentile shouldn't be allowed to believe, and we should be automatically grandfathered in. And God said, no, I am universally spreading this truth, and whoever believes is who comes in. So that's the context. The, the interesting thing about this is it's the same today. I said earlier today, no book in the Bible is as relevant today as Acts. Because Acts ends, and it Acts ends again, we think, 60 to 62 is the two-year period of time of his imprisonment. And here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and we're still there. We're still living out the end of Acts. So he goes on. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. So he was able to have his own residence, pay for it. He has no way of making money, so this is probably part of the gifts as we see in, in Philippians, which we believe was written during this imprisonment, that he thanks them for the money they've sent. So we, we understand that he's getting support from churches, uh, from areas, uh, city churches. So that's part of probably how he's affording this. But he's allowed to live in his own, again, chained to a guard, though. Therefore, uh, he let it be known. Uh, yeah, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We have two things here. We have verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, and others disbelieved. And, and he goes and says, okay, now I'm going to turn to the Gentile because they will believe, yet it's still open to the Jew. Paul set up shop. Acknowledge the fact that Jews have rejected and Gentiles have accepted, yet he's still open to Jews coming and hearing about the good news. And that's the story, more or less, all the way through the 2,000 years. That, that God has still reached out to the Jew, even though he knows that they have consistently in mass rejected, not all Jews, but certainly the majority, but he still reaches out over and over. And there's a lesson in it for us. It's kind of like, how do we know when to give up on somebody? When do we know when to stop sharing the good news with them because they just can't seem to accept it? It's an issue we, we deal with here at Timberwood Church with the missions team. We support an individual and organization, and they're in an area. We've supported them for many years, and, and, and the fruit maybe isn't there, and we kind of go, okay, should we be supporting them continually or not? I mean, here's this ministry that seems like all kinds of people are coming to faith. Should we shift our money from these people who have been there 10 years and nobody's come to faith to these people where it seems like, well, I mean, how... how how do we figure that out? And then, 
How can we be discerning enough to know when, when the Holy Spirit's about ready to do something? You know, there's all kinds of stories in history where 10 years of nothing, and then the 11th year, boom. We, we support somebody that, that they're having huge numbers of people come to faith. But that's after 20 years of working in that area, and all of a sudden, poo, all this is happening. Well, year 15, if you had evaluated them, you would have gone, nah, this ain't happening. I think we should go somewhere else and spend our money somewhere else. You wouldn't have hung around for the fruit. How do we know? But then again, we're supposed to be discerning. We're supposed to be able to judge people by the fruit of what they do. So how do we know? Can we be discerning enough to sense when the Holy Spirit is working? Convicting somebody? Piquing their interest in things? Or do we ever get to the point where, you know, examples we hear about, you know, um, pick a relative, a, a parent, a, a child, a, a, a sibling, and maybe they're, they have a bad diagnosis or they're getting older and, and somebody feels great conviction. I, I, I've got to figure out how to save them. I, I mean, their time is short. I've got to do something. And how do we process that? Can we save anyone? Do we have the ability to convince anyone of the truth? No. We certainly, in obedience, share the truth and trust the Holy Spirit and the power of that work between the Word of God and the Holy Spirit can do amazing things. But we ourselves cannot talk somebody in to believing. We don't have that power. So how do we how do we process that? What causes Paul to keep trying? It's a different synagogue. They're going to reject me again, but I'm going to go in and I'm going to share the truth. I've been called to Gentiles, but I am going to go to the Jew first. And share the good news knowing that they're going to reject me. They may even try to kill me. They may even try to terminate my work here in this city. Even though there's many Gentiles that would believe if I could actually stay here. But I'm going to go to the Jew. How can we be so committed? Be so under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. That we do that. So he sat in his house and took all comers and he had a, again, Philippians. We think there are four books called the prison epistles written in the prison time. Philippians, or well, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. And, and if we take that and we understand that's the context, it seems like this was quite a fruitful time. I mean, he's having an effect on the Praetorian guard that, you know, are chained to him. Think about it. You're chained to Paul. You got the rotation. Maybe it's even two years and you're, I don't know, six on, two off maybe. And, and those are days. And then you're on for six hours and, and off for a few hours and back on. And you're chained to him. 
That hadn't been a good time, right? Hey, let me tell you. Uh, have you heard my story about conversion? Let me share that again with you. You know, I mean, he's going to wear you down, right? There's no doubt why some of them came to faith because they're chained to him. Yeah. One of the most powerful condensed views of, of the gospel, the good news, is Ephesians. In fact, in my discipleship work, most times I'll take people through Ephesians. And it's just, it's there. It, it's, not, it's not the most powerful spiritual formation book, but certainly, if you want the condensed, if Romans seems too big and dense to you, go to Ephesians. It gives you that, really, the good news uh, laid out there. And, and we believe he wrote that during this time. You know, he goes into Rome after written Romans in this big tomb. He's get there. He's being chained to these guards. And he's going, I got to come up with a shorter version. I'm losing these guys. Okay, let's see. Um, yeah, in the spiritual realm, you are, receive all these blessings if you come to faith. Let me tick them off for you. You know, chapter one of Ephesians. Boom, 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 boom. It's like an outline. It's like if you had like, I got to make it short and sweet for you. This is what happens if you come to faith. These things happen. And we can just see him refining that. And then he's going, okay, some have come to faith. Now I've got to talk about spiritual formation. Ha, Philippians. Okay, and Philippians isn't so much about coming to faith, but you talk about a book about spiritual formation. Three, I came to understand that all that I had in this world, all those things I valued, I consider them rubbish. I can consider them, in fact, beyond rubbish, the most vile, dead body, burning kind of rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Not that I've already obtained it, but I strive forward, forgetting what's behind. You can just hear him saying that to people as they come and the card that he's attached to. So we can see how this developed over those two years think about that as you, as you especially ephesians and and uh philippians when you read those i i know you've probably read them many times read them again thinking of paul two years in prison in his own dwelling probably an apartment in a what's called a tenement in rome there were many of them and he's chained, and he's, he's been sharing it. He's, it's just refining his thought process of how I can share the good news, how I can share him in that comes to be, to work out my salvation, as he says in Philippians. And just read them in that context. Just see how his thinking was refined from sharing day in and day out with mostly Gentiles, many Romans, many that have no understanding of Judaism, that really don't, really know about Yahweh. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful way to come at it. So that, that ends Acts. How can he just end like this? I mean, come on. And he's in prison for two years. What happens? Did he get tried? How did the trial go? Was he released? Was he not released? What happened? Was he in prison? Does, does he ever get out of prison? Is this what results in his his execution later, or is he released and, 
And, and is he allowed to go into ministry again? Then he's rearrested. What happens? We got to know. So, yeah. So you take an Acts course and they make you write a paper on why it ends the way it ended, which makes sense. So really there's four main theories of why it ends the way it ends. The first is that Paul dies in captivity. He's dying, you know, toward the end of this two-year period of time. And Luke just records that. Mm, not likely. We, we have many accounts much closer to this period of time, or very close to this period of time, that Paul uh, does survive and actually dies toward the end of Nero's reign. Nero's reign ends in um, 68. The fire is in 64 where Rome burns. Nero started it, uh, blames the Christians. And so somewhere between 64 and 68, we're pretty sure Paul died. So that probably isn't true. The other one is that Luke wrote at the end of the two-year period of time. That doesn't make any sense because he had to write, he writes Luke first, the gospel. And as we see in that, we see some references that seem to speak to he wrote after. In fact, he probably wrote into 66, even after maybe 70. So uh, when the temple was destroyed. So that doesn't make much sense. One says that Luke was planning a third volume. And that he was going to write volume three, one Luke, you know, gospel of Luke, second Acts. Third volume, he's going to give us more of what happens to Paul. There seems to be nothing that seems to say, you can see in Luke that, he, that there was a second volume coming. There's nothing that makes us think there's a third volume. And the, the final one, which most people accept, is it isn't about Paul. See, we're all, we're all focused on Paul, right? Last half of the, the book's about Paul, and we're caught up in his journey and his trial, and we've been trying to get him to trial for how many chapters? It seems like forever we've been worried about this trial. Da, da, da. It's not about Paul. This is not his biography. He's not the focus of Acts. The gospel, the good news, has reached Rome. That was the focus. And in reaching Rome, we're reminded again that the Romans found nothing wrong with Paul or with Christianity, which is, again, was a key point for Luke. He's writing to a Roman official, Theopolis. He's trying to make the point, no Roman ever found any problems with Paul or with Christianity. So then now Paul's in Rome. Yeah. What is Acts about? Acts is about the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, through his followers, and through what becomes his church. The new people of God, which is the church. That is continuing today. Acts ends and it is still, we are as close to the end as they have been at any time in the last 2,000 years. It's a continuation of the work of the Holy Spirit through the people of God, through churches. All these times, Paul's creating churches, reinforcing churches, 
interacting with churches, encouraging churches, seeing how God works through churches. It's the same today. So, as much as we'd want the, I want to know what happens to Paul, and we want it in authoritative form, as in the Bible, because we have the church uh, history, you know, as it's been told, and the church history is that he, he is released, that they never press the charges, and under Roman law, if you don't press the charges, there are no charges, that he's released, he goes into ministry, he even reaches Spain. Okay, we don't know if that's for sure, but there's references to him reaching Spain. Remember, he wanted to in Romans. Then he's rearrested in a totally different context. By this time, things have gone wacky for Nero, and he's rearrested, and it looks a lot like 2 Timothy. He's in a dungeon, he's chained in an uncomfortable position, there's no guard that he's chained to in his own residence. He's actually in pretty tough shape. And then he's uh, beheaded because he's uh, a Roman citizen where uh, Peter's crucified. They're not at the same time, but in the same uh, persecution, the same push by Nero to uh, try to stamp out or blame Christianity for the problems of Rome, which were created by Nero's basic insanity in the second half of his reign. So that's, that's where we're at. That's how we wrap up. That's how we close. I want to just take a little bit of time and just remind ourselves, because whenever we end up Acts, we, we, our whole focus is what? It's Paul, like we just talked about. Because that's what we've been studying. But let's remember, really, the highlights are what Acts uh, says for us. And we got to remember how we started Acts. We started Acts with Jesus Christ here on earth, having been resurrected, meeting with the disciples, and them still not getting it, them saying, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he's got to be going, oh, okay, nope, 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 okay, you don't, that's up for God to know, but let me tell you what's going to happen, and we get this powerful statement, it's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens. Now, Rome is not the ends of the earth. But to them in the Middle East, yeah, it's the end of the earth. It's the center of all power. And that becomes then the the focus of Acts, and that's where it takes us. The problem is, is they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? And that's Pentecost. And Pentecost is that key inflection point in the entire Bible. We often think it's an inflection point in the New Testament, but no, it's the whole Bible. Remember, we have to remember what the Old Testament is like. God cannot be in the presence of humans because of sin. There always has to be barriers. In the temple, there's that barrier. There's always that protective barrier between God and the people. And he always has to speak through prophets, through kings, 
Because you can't deal directly with the people, A, they're afraid, but B, this barrier of sin. And through Jesus Christ, that barrier is destroyed, is taken away through his death and resurrection, and now God, God the Holy Spirit, the person, the person of the Holy Spirit, dwells in the believers. This is crazy. This is one of the problems for the Jews. They're going, this cannot happen. God cannot dwell in us because we would die the minute it happened. It just can't. No, no, Jesus Christ took away the barrier. Just can't accept it. By the Holy Spirit dwelling in his believers, amazing things happen. And that's the book of Acts. The amazing things that are done through the people that believe through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul walking in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Being willing to risk his life over and over. Taking beatings, you know, go to 2 Corinthians. Taking beatings, flogging, shipwreck, near death, being persecuted, being people trying to kill him all the time. Because he is what? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's the the essence of Acts. And we have to ask ourselves again, I know we've talked about it many times, where are we with the Holy Spirit? We know in Romans 8, 9, how do we know we're justified? Because we have the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're not justified. Justified means saved. People say, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. You, You gotta know. You got to know. This is critical. How do I know I'm saved? You're saved if you have the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I know the Holy Spirit? Look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Look at evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. We talked about John Wesley and how we came to realize, I don't have what they have. If they have the Holy Spirit, I don't have it. I need to get right with God. That powerful understanding of what it means to have had our own day of Pentecost, not where we speak in tongues or anything, but how we receive the Holy Spirit. We see in the, the disciples what? They don't get it one minute, Holy Spirit comes. Next thing, there's preaching truth to gobs of people. And, and we go, where did that come from? Peter starts speaking. We go, wait a minute, that's the guy that denied Jesus. That's the guy that's still saying, hey, when do we get to reign? And Pentecost happens, and all of a sudden he's saying stuff that just seems, I can't believe this. If, if we've come to faith, how have we changed? How have we been transformed by the Holy Spirit? And then, then we, we go on and we see the, you know, the work of Peter and, and what goes on and gospel starts advancing and then we see in this pivotal chapter 10 where we see you know nine um, Saul come to faith and become Paul but in 10 we, we see Peter interacting with Cornelius and then having that vision we see God literally taking away that wall that Paul talks about in Ephesians that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That in Jesus Christ, that wall's gone. 
that, that wall that the Jews just used to flaunt their separatistness from them to the rest of the world, which are Gentiles. If the barrier between God and humans was taken away by Jesus, the barrier between Jew and Gentile was also taken away by Jesus. And the body of Christ, the people of God, are now one. There aren't Jew Christians and Gentile Christians. There are Christians. Now, again, it's a big point of Ephesians. As you read Ephesians, you talk about how two have become one. The enemies have become brothers in faith. Then we see Antioch and Paul and Barnabas at first, and Paul and Silas and the missionary journeys, and how the Gentiles, they go to the Jews, but the Gentiles are the one believing, a Jew, and then Gentiles are believing. And how this just really makes the church in Jerusalem struggle. The Jewish Christians are going, what's going on? And we have the great council at Jerusalem in 15, where the Holy Spirit speaks, where Peter speaks and Paul speaks, and then the Holy Spirit speaks and James says, no, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. That the grace of God can come to the Gentile and the Gentile can come to faith as Gentiles. And then we see all this go on and these churches get started and Paul continuing to be used powerfully by God and directed by the Holy Spirit. And we see Asia come to faith and we see coming around in, in Philippi and down in Macedonia and then into Caia and, and even all the way into Athens. Though we don't know if anybody comes to faith in Athens, but it is an interesting story. And then we see Paul's march to Rome and Luke's statement saying, the only people that have trouble with Christianity are the Jews because they don't get it. And, and, and really that statement that Paul says here, you hear but you don't understand, you see but don't perceive, that's for the Romans. To tell the Romans, this is why the Jews are so against Christianity. That, that it was meant for them, but they've rejected it. They can't see it. Don't get caught up in their hostility. Their hostility has nothing to do with you. It's hostility toward God, not toward Christians. The Christians are the object of their hostility, not the reason. And we come to the close. Still one of my favorite books in all the Bible. Again, because it's so relevant today. If we believe the Holy Spirit is real and that the Holy Spirit dwells in those that believe, and if we leave, believe the Holy Spirit is the, what's the hand of God that's working in Acts, then it's the same Holy Spirit that's working today in each one of us. And that should give us great peace Give us great empowerment and give us a sense that we are part of truly transforming all of creation. All right, grab a Bible and go in your discussion.